Hello. Hi, Matt and Dave. How are you both? Hi, Roger. I, I mean, I don't know if you noticed in our, maybe you didn't get it in our invitation to the interview. It's, there was a typo fun. and it said Roger Q. Mason. L- let me tell you something. You've actually, yeah, I, I'll tell you this. You all have cued into something because nice. when I was growing up, uh, they would call me Roger from time to time. <laughs> oh, wow. So that was uh, that was a very uh, happy accident. We should properly introduce you. I just got back from Las Vegas, so I'm still in like a darker state mm. of mind. I've been brought down, and I, I think that our guest this week, Dave, is going to bring us right back up. They are a writer and performer extraordinaire with a new play called Lavender Men. When this comes out, uh, should now be playing in L.A. So if you're in L.A., get tickets. Uh, it's at the Skylight Theater and then at the Playwrights Arena. And also, I, I should just say, they know uh, synonyms for everything. Roger. <laughs> so we're going to have a great time. Roger Q. Mason, thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much. When I'm in Paris, I go by Roger. But, you know, when Paris is burning, they call the girls still call me Roger Q. Mason. So thank you both so much for having thank me you for on. Being I here. appreciate it. And you are a ray of sunshine. How is your how's your Monday? We're talking on a Monday morning. Oh, my God. We're talking on a Monday morning. So this is our off day from Mm. rehearsals. We're actually, as you all just mentioned, um, I'm in rehearsals for my play Lavender Men, which is going up at Skylight Theater. And the show is a co-presentation between Skylight and another L.A. theater company called Playwrights Arena. And the two of those companies are you know, really sort of beacons of hope for new play development in Los Angeles. When we think of L.A., we don't often think about theater. You know, we certainly go to the music scene. And then, of course, obviously, we go to TV film. And so but there's a thriving theater community in Los Angeles and Skylight and Playwrights Arena are two companies that specialize in developing and producing new plays by Los Angeles based writers. So it's been quite a journey and quite beautiful, if I might say. When you're not in rehearsals, what are you currently consuming pop culture wise? Is there a show you're binging or a movie you've seen recently or music you're obsessed with? Okay, all of the above. So first of all, I love Outer Banks. I love that show. Interesting. Okay, we don't hear much from that. You know, the thing is, it sort of got me through the pandemic. Well, the worst, well, I don't know where we are. It it got me through the first two years of the pandemic. Just this idea of this, this sort of treasure hunt show set in the American South where they can basically use the the platform of this mystery whodunit treasure hunt to talk about so many social and cultural issues from like class to race to, you know, identity. I mean, it's just a really smart show. And of course, it's exciting and gripping. But the the show that really got me through was Elite. Have y'all seen this show? What's Elite? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I have to get back into oh. it. Hun, okay, you want please explain, okay, Roger. So, Matt and Dave and all the listeners around the world, this is not a paid endorsement, but <laughs> honey, so Elite is this show in Spain. It takes place in this mythological version of Madrid at this elite boarding school where everyone is wealthy except for a couple of kids that are sort of scholarship students. And every season, these naughty ass children kill somebody. And so we spend like 
10 episodes and some change in sort of like flashback, you know, visions of how, because they tell us who they killed in the first episode. And then we sort of spend the next 11 figuring out who did it and how they did it and why they did it. And what I loved about the show was that, especially in the first two seasons, it kind of really talked a lot about the the class war and also the sort of racial hierarchy that still exists in Spain, sort of this old world sort of fiefdom, you know, inheritance-based, you know, culture. You have all these marquesas and, and sort of royalty. And then you have these new kids who are trying to use their educations to come up in Madrid society and they're black and brown and queer. And I love the fact that like, there's like the two worlds and they're colliding in this show. As you can see, I really, I think I'm drawn to television that sort of talks about history and society, but does it in a fu- fun and sexy way. And baby, yeah. these sex scenes, I mean, at season four or whatever one they're on at this, these children are like putting Nutella on each other and like having a whole mood on their, on their auntie's kid. I mean, they're doing <laughs> too much. <laughs> I'm like, these are not 16 year olds anymore. They're doing, they're no, doing it's, too much. it's wild. It's so good. Dave, you've, you've for sure seen clips of it, Dave, on gay Twitter. Like you're, you're meeting a new character in the shower. You know, there's just, glistening bodies the likes of which we've never seen it feels weird to say that about high school characters but yes but they, surely we, they're played they're, by they're they're full-grown yeah. adults the way they are in the States. they're adults yeah they're all consenting adults but like for the longest time there was oh god now i'm forgetting the the, the muslim character's name but Ander is the one that the the former principal and he has this muslim boyfriend and so they spent like three seasons on that and then there's this nasty third wheel boy who basically needs to be on a on a gucci billboard and he comes in and messes up the whole thing and then Ander leaves and then now it's omar omar is the, the guy's name and then it's him and then omar leaves and then now they're basically establishing this new gucci billboard kid as the new, you know, gay love interest slash shitster. I mean, it's just, it's addictive as hell. It's well, good. Absolutely sold. It is. I'm 100% sold. What did you grow up watching? Oh my God. I mean- Because this, this kind of level of sexy queerness was not available to us until 10 minutes ago. And, and yet, it was not available until 10 minutes ago. And yet I was about to say that these scenes sort of pick up where queer as folk okay. left off. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, you know, there I was in, in my parents' house in Koreatown. I would wait until everyone was asleep. And then I would go to this little 12 inch television that was like extremely wide in the back and would like click and make a noise to turn off, you know? Oh, and I would cringe when that motherfucker would turn on. I would sit there and be like, oh, I hope everyone is snoring and no one heard me. And I would turn on MTV and I would watch the real world. And then they had that naughty little show called Undressed. And that was where I first learned about Queer Desire was that 10 p.m. show. And then, of course, later uh, it was Queer as Folk. And I just, but I even remember watching Will and Grace in like 1998 and thinking I was doing something wrong because there was one scene with Will and Grace in a bathtub together. I don't know if y'all mm-hmm. even remember that. I think it was from the pilot, honestly. This was like the beginning of this thing. Yes. And it was like the two of them 
in this tub together in a platonic relationship because he had some boyfriend or she had broken up, whatever the circumstance of the week was. And these two people bonding platonically over other loves and, and the ability for the two, I mean, I saw myself and my, and my bestie at that point, you know, I saw the two of us talking and, and it was a possibility model for me because it, it sort of, prefigured who I am now, but it, it was a window into a life that I could have, a healthy relationship to femininity, but also a healthy relationship to queerness. And I think, you know, kids now with everything being so open and out, you know, with social media and also the television people watch, there was something clandestine, but really necessary about watching those shows at night for us as queer people, because I think they, they gave us hope for who we could be. I forgot all about Undressed. That was that was saucy. Mm. Mm. So who was, let's say, like 10-year-old Roger? Ooh. What were you up to? Uh, you know, what were you serving? Honey. What were the looks? I was served, okay, what was I wearing then? Mm. Well, you know, I, I became obsessed with bootleg jeans. <laughs> okay. Because I like, because, well, you know, they were true bootlegs at the beginning, and then they sort of had to make them, you know, more normative for the straights, but they would sort of go in and right. then they would flare. And you remember that five seconds that they had flare jeans for men? Yeah. So I was obsessed yeah. with that. I called myself El Cubano as a child because I loved Spanish, but it was this very sort of attitudinal sofrito-based Spanish. So I went to school, they called me El Cubano. So I loved wearing Guayavera shirts. You know, and I would wear those. And so my vibe would be sort of like little hats, emphasis on little, because now mother has all kinds of elaborate, you know, crazy hats. But at, at that time, I would wear little hats and then I would have guayaveras and then I would have these flare jeans. And that was sort of the, the vibe I was serving in terms of what I was wearing. Who was I? You know, it's funny you ask that, Dave, because... And Matt, because what I was doing at that time, I was searching and fighting for an identity that had no name yet. You know, I, I have always been a gender queer person and there just wasn't language for it. Now, this is separate and distinct. Of course, we don't have to do queerness one-on-one on this podcast, but just for, you know, just for your weekend tourists mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that, yeah, you know, seats. for those who might come in, we can't conflate my sexuality, my desire uh, for romantically for my gender expression. And my gender expression was very queer and very expansive at that time. I mean, I, the voice I have now is the voice I've always had. It's probably lower now because, you know, the business will give you acid reflux, darling. You know, but I, the voice never dropped. You know, I, I did not have the same puberty that other people did. I won't get into it. But I just manifested myself almost biologically in a different way. There was a third way. You know, it was not male or female for me. It was this, and certainly in the way that I expressed myself, my you know, the closest proximity to friends at that time were women because emotionally I could understand their journey so much. You know, they kicked me out of the PE. I don't even know if they do physical education anymore for these children. 
but they kicked me out of PE. Kicked you out? Because I, well, I would go to PE and, you know, we, we, there'd be the locker room. And we know everything that we've learned about yes. queer exchange starts in the locker room. And these boys who were just learning what their dicks were for would be so threatened by my presence that they report, oh, he was looking at me, this and that and the other, you know. And so it became that they would start coming up to me and like flashing in what now we would say is, you know, assault, a sexual assault. It was very unsafe for me to be in that space. I really chalk it up to here is a world in which people are meant to be insecure about a very fragile and fictitious binary, trying to define and defend their place in it. And someone disrupts the neatness of that identity marker system. So now when you start to disrupt it, all of a sudden, you who hold it so dear because that's how you make meaning in the world are are now left to question if it's real at all. And if it isn't real, then then my attractiveness isn't real. Then my ability to, you know, use my gender privilege to get a job isn't real. Then my ability to be represented, you know, as the global or not even the global majority, but the sort of power centric majority isn't real. You know, and sort of what does it mean to disrupt the structure of how we identify ourselves in this world? That's what my plays are about. You know, that's what certainly this play, Lavender Man, is a disruption of a certain myth of Abe Lincoln and and, and his status as an American president. I'm not interested in, you know, poo-pooing him. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in just saying, what does it mean for us to disrupt the fragile and finite and really just rigid understanding of history and identity. Because if we can say Lincoln is queer and he had a love affair, and we can use that as a place to launch a conversation about, you know, white cisgender male exclusion of Black queer bodies from the LGBTQIA plus community, and we can say that it's actually the definition of these masculinities that come from our abuse of history that lead us to this moment where no fats, no femmes, no blacks is a thing on Grinder. How do you come into a situation already saying, no, I don't want to make love to you. That's not the man for me. If he's already coming from a place of no, what else is he going to say no to? Don't touch me here. No, I have to. I was in a couple of situations like that with these boys that didn't know how to listen, had come from a place of rigidity and negation and denial. Because I will say this to the two of you, and y'all know this, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this too. All of the biases that we exhibit in the queer community are just microcosmic you know, distillations of the prejudice that exists in the larger world. Just because we are somewhat, you know, of a, a fringed section of society or have been, doesn't mean that we're incapable of hate and bias and bigotry. We are just as capable in our c- community from our position 
of replicating those same things that ostracized and silenced us. Yeah. In fact, more. Yeah. The, the fear and the exclusion that you described there it sets you on yeah. one of two paths. You either do as you have done and do the work to unravel it and examine it and mm. try to change it, or you hold on to that anger and feeling of exclusion and pass it on to someone else. Or, or you, or you mm-hmm. like throw your whole back into trying to make something that, you know, your dad is going to think is perfect or, or something, you know? Well, and that was 12 year old Roger. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you just like you might as well be my therapist right now, Dave, because that is exactly who 12 year old Roger was. Sure. That was 14, 16, 18 year old Roger was trying to find this place of respectability. Right. You know, I can't you know, you you announced me at the beginning of this as the writer performer that that is sort of a recent realization for me, merging those two things. You know, the performer in me always existed, but was silenced when I was coming up. You know, my family was worried about me becoming a sissy ass artist. Now, now, of course, they're obsessed. You know, they try to get everybody in town to come and see Miss Mason, you know, live on stage at the Palladium four weeks only, darling. You know, but in those times, there was a real concern that, you know, queerness was was inherited through sort of transference of performance, you know, and that kind of silencing weighs on you. Because it, it it teaches you that a part of who you are is wrong and needs to be curtailed. And so, you know, 10-year-old me was like singing Beauty and the Beast in a sheet and playing Belle in my bedroom, you know. And then 12-year-old was told, you know, put your hands down, don't wave your arms like that, don't do your head like this, don't act like that, don't speak like this. And then it, it would take another... I can't do math, 25 years, but yeah, just about 25 years to now come up and be on this podcast with y'all as this fully formed bitch that I am now, you know, but that took decades of healing and permission, self-permission. The performer in me saved the writer in me because the writer in me spent about a decade and a half trying to be respectable. You know, I was interested in being a man of letters, you know, and and I'm not interested in the manhood part anymore. And I'm certainly not interested in this sort of, you know, cisgender notion of being a person of letters as defined by our current canon. We need a new canon and we need a new way of looking at who's in it. And we need a more gender expansive system by which we evaluate and treasure people in this world. Can you say more about what your earlier writing was like, like what you you called sort of, quote unquote, respectable? Yeah. You know, I had a play very early on that was called Orange Woman. It was about Shakespeare's African mistress. And so what I would do is I would use these sort of themes of cloaking. You know, I was really talking about queerness. I was really talking about what does it mean for someone to reject my black body? you know, as a queer person, but I would do it through this African woman who lived in Elizabethan England, you know, or I had a play, uh, you know, called Onion Creek that was about a, a celibate peach farmer who was mixed race, who had fallen in love and um, with, with this Irish sojourner in 1870s Texas. And that was really a piece about my own 
fear of intimacy. You know, so it was this hiding behind these, and there was just something that didn't click because they weren't quite, the narratives weren't quite, quite free creatively. They were very, you know, emotionally constipated. They would rely on poetics and, and on sort of turn of phrase and this kind of thing. And when I just needed to get down into it and just tell the truth, you know, and so I remember when all this happened, I've told this story a couple of times, but I'll, let me see if I can remember something new about it this time. You know, the year was 2019. That was the year that that um, they had sort of begun this new commitment to Black playwriting in this country. That was the year that Slave Play had come out, A Strange Loops, uh, off-Broadway premiere was happening. Alicia Harris was rising up the ranks with Is God Is, and Jackie Sibley's Drury had done Fairview. It was, it was that time. And so here I come, you know, by coastal Miss Mason, got on the plane to do a residency with Hook and Eye Theater, which is a devised theater company at uh, at the Flea Theater. And the play was called Pleasure Man at that time. Now it's called The Pride of Lions. But it was a piece about 1928 drag queens in a Mae West show that was on Broadway. And they, uh, I'm also advertising for those of y'all producers on this show. It is a waiting premiere, darling. And we are happy to help to work with you to help us get some wigs for these girls. And, uh, <laughs> you know, because she's a costume drama. But it took place in 1928 in New York. And it was five female impersonators. We'll call them what they called them at the time. And they were they were getting their big break in a Mae West show and it get, gets shut down by the indecency laws of the time. This is right before the Hayes Code, you know, in movies. And so the second act of the piece is the two of them sort of grappling with their inner and outer demons in jail. And then I won't tell you about the third act because she real bloody, but I just said it. So we were doing uh, an excerpt from the piece at, at the flea and we couldn't get somebody to play Molasses Jones. And Molasses Jones is a, ha- a Harlem queen who's really from Tougaloo, Mississippi originally. And she ain't going to sing for no white man until he pays her. You know, so she's kind of a Ma Rainey type, you know, thing. And everyone was booked. Thankfully, they were all booked because they were all working. And so the director, Michael Alvarez, says to me, honey, we've got three weeks till curtain. So go go uh, buy some heels now and start practicing. Because I was staying on his couch, so I had no excuse to practice. But I had to get, he'd wake me up. Okay, did you get your heels, girl? Yes, ma'am. And I'd get them heels, put on that turban. And I had on a caftan, probably similar to this. And I'd just flounce around the house. And we were rewriting as I was flouncing. And the rewrites were hot. And they were real. And they were about, what does it mean to be silenced? What does it mean to be told you shouldn't sing like that in Tougaloo? And why do you have to move up to New York? in order to be somebody. And then the other characters rewrites, it started coming a lot. And I realized something. I had not been writing for the actor. I had been writing for the father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad, mm-hmm. for my dad, and all of those other people in my life that I was seeking approval from. And that was the wrong place from which to build work that needs to come from my perineum. And that brings us to Lavender Mm. Men, which is 
described as a historical yeah. fantasia, and you touched on this yeah. a little bit, that you're kind of confronting the myth of Abe Lincoln. Right. Can you talk a little more about what, just what about that myth you wanted to unpack? Well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, I have a personal relationship to that myth, and it might be different from, you know, dominant cultures. My My interest in it is that in Lincoln, we get basically the, the 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 proletariat myth of you can be from the holler, you can be from bumfuck wherever. And as long as you work hard and do a good job and are earnest, you will make something of yourself in this country. And we hear that argument a lot these days, especially, you know, amongst folks that are arguing against things like affirmative action we hear the myth of, well, I work hard and you do too, and, and there's no such thing as racism and, and all of this kind of erasure of the social structures that make it easier, even slightly, for for white America to get things in ways that, that black and brown and immigrant American populations have an uphill battle. And it's like, how do we reckon with the fact that these biases are born, maybe not even out of the truth of these people's lives, but out of how we contort those lives to fit for convenience the narrative we need to to permeate a society so that it will continue in the ways that, that it does now? You know, because they may not have even wanted what we, the lives that we have assigned to them. You know, history is told by the living. And history is told by the people in charge in order to perpetuate a certain understanding of our world that that, that structure needs us to maintain. We see this in the way that books are censored now in certain states, the ways that curriculums are curtailed. I mean, you, you've got a state in this country where you can't say certain words. I was talking to a friend of mine today about, you know, a couple of uh, folks, you know, she knows who have some evangelical friends that their families won't even allow them to talk about sexuality, even heteronormative sexuality, because that kind of expression of self is something that's not to be talked about publicly. Well, we need to talk about it because we are bodies and they have neurochemical and psychosexual desires. And the more we sort of censor that aspect of ourselves and make ourselves emotionally and corporeally constipated, you can't deny your loins in public and in private forever without something exploding. And what excites the living hell out of me right now is I think we're in an explosive time. I think we're in a time where the children, the legendary children, are no longer going to allow things to live in the dark. They're going to shed light on the truth. And accountability culture on social media is a real and powerful thing. And I was talking to some folks in the cast last night. We were thinking about all of these moments in nonprofits and in theater and in government where people are getting outed for things that they're so accustomed to doing behind closed doors. And those doors are being swung open on, on Instagram and people are retiring and resigning and we're making real progress and real change because we're saying you can no longer do this to me in the dark. And I think that's 
that's sort of part of the spirit of the show too, is shedding light on the fact that people are more complicated than the historical narratives we assign to them. And that we can't abuse people's lives to suit the convenient narratives that we need to control other people and keep the societal norm going. I, you know, I, I agree that the kids coming up are just not going to take the shit anymore. But the people no. who are going right. out are doing everything they can do to, you know, to codify bigotry and, and you know, leave a stain for generations. Yeah. Literally in, in the law, in the law. I mean, we, we, in the law, they are so worried about legacy. You know, I, maybe it's because I'm going from 30s to 40s, but I'm hearing a lot of people in my generation and also others talking about how they want to be remembered. I'm like, child, you only 35. Why the hell are you worried about your grave yet? Mother's still living. You can worry about that. I'm going to keep living. You know, but people, I think the pandemic did it. You know, I think the social revolution did it. I think like how history and memory are made now you know, how facts are sort of altered. People are worried about how they're going to be remembered. There's a real anxiety about legacy right now. So this generation that's going out, which really was taught to ascribe to this myth, you know, because if you think about it, that was the area, the era of the bicentennial. That was the era of like the hundred something anniversary of the Civil War. That was the moment, a hundred year anniversary. You know, that was that moment where our, our parents, perhaps, you know, were taught that myth of you work hard and you live clean and you put in your 30 years and you pay that mortgage and then hopefully your kids won't have that debt. And, and now we're living in a gig economy. You know, these mortgages never got paid off. <laughs> People are refinancing. Honey, we're in a recession. Inflation is real. These gas prices... This myth that these people were sold, the man in the gray flannel suit, you, you dig what I'm saying? The myth is eroding right before these folks' eyes. And now they're 70, they're 80 years old, and they're saying, what the fuck did I live for? What was my life? I was sold a particular way of living in the world. When I was coming up, Ozzy loved Harriet. You know, and that is disintegrating. And that means there's an existential generational crisis going on. When you take somebody's downtown, the center of their existential city away, they now no longer have a center around which they can revolve the rest of their identities. And they start getting frightened because the human mind craves order. And it craves stability. You know, I, I, it's funny. I was thinking this is going to get morbid, but we're going to go here for a second. If, if we can. Let's go. You know, I was thinking about ants, you know, because it's summer. So ants are everywhere around me right now in the house where I'm staying. And, you know, and I was sitting here thinking, you know, an ant doesn't really think about its legacy. An ant gets up, gets the food helps the other ants carry it back to the queen, procreates with her, continues to do it for either five months to 15 years, however long, you know, until my finger gets to them. 
and then dies and doesn't think a damn thing about it. Sentience, the idea of being human and knowing, is both our great gift and also our great curse. Because we now that we know that there is a moment at which we will not know, we seek to preserve that knowing through somebody else. And we do everything in our power to try and codify our legacy and our and and we destroy other people in the process. What if we just lived? What if we were just in the present? What if we just did as you know, as many Eastern religions said, non-attachment, non-reaction. You know, that's the other thing I learned from being the actor. You can't do anything but one thing in front of the other. And the most important acting lesson I would give to anyone is just be here. That's what we learn more than anything else is to just be here. You know? Ooh, child. Because I'm ready to join the Church of Roger Q. Mason, and I have to ask, what's your connection to the to organized religion or or, or spirituality? I'm gonna pull up this chair because I gotta get close to y'all. I gotta get close to y'all. I grew up in I was I was baptized into the Methodist Episcopal Church, and I went to First Day of Me until I was 18, and I was an alkalite in uh, in the uh, in the church growing up and i remember when i was a kid sitting up at night praying to god to take the gay away and he didn't take it away he he revealed that i was attracted to both the masculine and the feminine form physically and perhaps that was the gift, is the gift of I'm interested in connection. You know, I have a friend, uh, she's an oboist. You know, we, t- we talk one day, somebody female had bumped up against me and she said, honey, don't worry about that. That ain't nothing but friction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because if you close your eyes, if it feels right, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, is this a male? Or you know, you're not thinking about that. You think about the connection. And then I started I've been a yogi since I was 16, so very influenced by Eastern tradition. And my grandfather on my mother's side is clairvoyant, so there's a bit of a of a Filipino spiritualism element to me. And I don't go to an organized church. I listen to and I meditate with spirit. And that's what guides me. And I think the the true Christians do the same. My my father goes to uh, Second Baptist Church here in Los Angeles, and there's a there's a pastor on the church who gets up every morning, and she reads the word, and she really sits and meditates, almost in an Eastern way. She sits for an extended period of time and meditates on how that word can guide her through the day. That's the kind of relationship to spirituality and religion that we need to have. One that's individual and also geared in a focused way towards how we can use it towards betterment. I think the problem with organized religion right now many times is that the humans who are organizing it get in the way of the truth of the message. 
Because I think the message is so much purer and more humanistic and communal than folks allow it to be. So I, I got away from the church a long time ago, and I'm much more of a spiritualist now, I would say. I've, I've got to hear more about your grandfather, who was a clairvoyant, what that looked like, and if any of that was passed on to you. You know, my grandfather on my mother's side, my, my, so my dad is Black and Irish, and my, and my mother is Filipino. And my mother's side of the family, he, my grandfather there, he's still alive. He lives in the Philippines. My mother is a little, she's a seer as well, but it comes to her in dreams. And I, you know, it's funny because when I was going back to 12-year-old Roger, 12-year-old Roger would have a lot of past life regression visions as a kid. And I would be so frustrated, you know, because I was trying to get off of the wheel of samsara. I just want, I, I knew at 12 that I wanted to get off this wheel. <laughs> and I've always been that way. And I, I, I don't necessarily see specific events, but I can connect with intention. And when, if someone were to ask me something and I were to really meditate on them, not for too long, I could say something to them. If I trained it more, I'm sure I would be more what you would, you know, identify as, you know, clairvoyant in a traditional sense. But that, that is something that, that I do possess. We all have it, I think. I, I believe we all have the ability to, to access our third eye, you know, which I forget, pituitary gland, pineal gland. Some neuroscientist is going to correct me in the comments at some point. But we all have the ability, I think, to activate that particular gland in, 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 in the, uh, in the brain. It's just how many of us do it. And how many of us are open to doing it? Well, if you're still stuck on that binary and all that other worldly shit, you're not even opening your mind up to acknowledge that you're a spiritual being. You're still stuck in the body. See, we're in the body, above the body, below the body. Through That's the kind of, that that's awakening. And that takes a lot of time. And that takes humility. That's what we miss is humility and humanity, you know? So beyond my, my work as a writer and a performer, I'm also interested in motherhood. <laughs> How do I train these legendary children? You know, so I, I work on a couple of fellowships for young writers. One of them is called New Visions Fellowship, and it's for Black trans writers with the Dramatist Guild and um, the National Queer Theater. And the other one that I did is here with um, the Shea Foundation for Young Black Solo Show Artists. And also, I'm, I'm amongst friends and colleagues here because I also do have a podcast too. It's called Sister Rogers Gaberhood with my creative partner and work husband, Lovell Holder, who, who loves y'all. And I, and I have to do this shout out because he made, I, I promised him I would say hello to you. From oh, him. Well, we love you too. You know, but, but these are the different ways in addition to the writing and performing that I start doing more of this spiritual work because that's the higher calling. That's the real work. Okay, fine. I've had a show. Okay, fine. New York Times critics pick. That's wonderful. I'm happy for that stuff. 
talking about memory, talking about who I am. Call me mother. You know, let me know that somebody looked at my story and because they saw how I survived it, they formed a roadmap for their own manumission, their own freedom road. That's that's really what I'm interested in above and beyond everything else. And that's what that's what the pandemic taught me was the joy of the joy of motherhood. You know, what does it mean to give selflessly to somebody else? Who is giving you friction right now? Are you dating? Are you <laughs> hooking up? What's your status? You know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. And um, it's funny that you asked that question because, you know, Lavenderman talks about the lack of friction in, in that character's life, Taffeta, who's the narrator of the play. And that lack of friction is not entirely dissimilar to my own. Like that character, I I have a lot of issues in, in the world of love, you know? I'll be honest with you, motherhood is a double-edged sword because you end up being this matronly sort of leader figure for people, but no one sees you as, as a sexual being, you know? And, and that's what I've always struggled with, to be very honest with you, is being seen as a being of attraction for people. Now, I, of course, internalized it when I was younger as, oh, she's ugly, she's this, she's that, you know, the 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 the, the sort of struggle of the plus size body in in a, a in a thin privileged world. But now I sort of wonder if part of it too is when you come from a place of knowing yourself in the ways that I do. Sometimes that may be scary to people. You know, how do they find their way into that? And and the only way in it is through it. So come through me, darling, because mother's open and ready for love. Mm-hmm. You heard her. <laughs> She's just a single woman by herself telling the truth. <laughs> ah, Lord. Well, on that note, everybody get tickets to Lavender Men. It's they it's lavenderplayla.com. It's I think it's Lavender Men and it's opening August 6th and running through September the 4th at Skylight Theater in Las Feliz and the um the the I think the the website is lavendermenplayla.com. I think yes. that's it, but we can give you that link so you have it. Great. Roger Q. Mason, thank you. You are the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you both so much. You know, I I wish I had been able to comment on that episode that y'all had with Rana and Brian last week because they were talking about inner kids too. And I, you know, it was it was it was great. That was a really good one. Thank you both for having me. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Homophilia is a World of Wonder production, produced and edited by Kate Moldenhauer. Special thanks to Randy Barbato, Fenton Bailey, Stephen Sims, Edward Bochniak, and the whole team at World of Wonder. We love you. And theme music by my Ben Wise. Yes, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HomophiliaPod. You can give us a five-star review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Mm. Thank you for listening. We love you. 